0: So keep on working on this, I'm working hard on this. This pain office it is
1: oh Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this
0: week. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, divers. We have a conversation coming up today that is right up the Diving In podcast alley. It certainly is. Louise and I are going to be discussing some crime novels that are specifically legal crime stories, Mm. which is very fitting because we're both lawyers, although we're not currently (laughs) practising. And we met at law school many, many moons ago. I think we were in the same tutorial group, weren't we? We were. Because we we had... um, surnames in the same part of the alphabet, I think. And I used to see you arrive at university on your bicycle. Oh my gosh, (laughs) how funny. Uh, I heard Come a Chameleon on the radio this morning and it took me straight back to law school. You mean (laughs) the culture club song? And those baggy clothes we used to wear I felt like I was back there. Yeah, it was funny. So this genre, I think it needs a bit of expanding because it's such a good one. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't read a lot of books in this specific, subcategory, but the books that I've read for today's conversation, I really enjoyed. So I'm keen to read more. And uh, we have quite a wide range of books to talk about today, some very new and some very old. And today we're also going to talk about a book I've just read. We have to mention our exciting new shelf. We do. We'll we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have some bookish news. We have a life hack and we've got a few other things that we've each been diving into lately. But I thought we'd start off today with just some correspondence because we get so many fantastic messages. One we had was a request uh, from a lady to make sure that we repeat the name of the book and the the author at the end of our discussion, which we are meant to do. Yes. Uh, And you're very good about it, but I often forget. So today I've made myself an extra reminder and I've highlighted (laughs) it on my running sheet. Do you think it's a sort of a, a comment on the fact that we ramble on about the book and by which time the listener is thinking, what are they, which book, yeah. what <laughs> well, book are they talking about? Well, I know this happens to me when I listen to other book podcasts because mm. the person will say the book and then they talk about it and as they're talking you think, oh, I really, this sounds really good, I really want to read this, but you yes. have What was retained, it again? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we do love that sort of constructive feedback, so thank you because it, it helps us to make the show more enjoyable. Mm. So
1: did you want to do yours, Lou? Yes, we've received a beautiful email from Jan Pekak and I and I do hope that I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Jan says, "I started listening to book podcasts during COVID and subscribed to many. One by one I cancelled many of them. Yours and Currently Reading are my two favorites." Now that's lovely for us because so we also love Currently we Reading. Do. Recently, you recommended Death Leaves the Station, and I was surprised to find it on Kindle. Loved the book. Characters were well-developed. Since my teens and being introduced to Neville Shute, I've fantasised about the country. In the last few years, I've found several good crime mystery authors that I enjoy. This was a treat. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, and could you podcast more frequently, please?
0: Regards, Jan. That is so, so lovely. lovely. Yeah, that death leaves the station is such an unusual book. I loved it, and it really does give a very good flavour of West, northern Western Australia. Yes. yes. Uh, if you're looking for something, you know, intrinsically Australian, that yeah. really did a great yeah. job. Fantastic. So I know what she means. Um, I've got one from Karen in. VA she's in Virginia in America and she often sends us lovely messages and she's just said enjoying the latest podcast where we swapped books so much to take in I frequently go back to hear something again makes for a long listen you two are like a bolt of sunshine which I thought was really sweet and then Katie Six wrote this was such a great episode you could hear the absolute love of your books in your voices so that was very nice so thank you for those messages we Really appreciate it. They feed it when, us, don't they? They, they do. They really fortify They're very encouraging. It's so beautiful. So I just thought I'd very quickly kick off today because I thought I'd mention a book that I've just read. So in our very first episode, we talked about The Nickel Boys mm. by Colson Whitehead. Still with me. And that just blew us away. It was so good and, and so powerful. And I finally read Colson Whitehead's uh, The Underground Railroad. And it won the Pulitzer Mm -hmm. in 2017. And, oh, boy, it's also incredibly powerful and confronting but really worth Mm. your time, I think. I was embarrassingly ignorant about the details of slavery until I read Homegoing by Yaa uh, Gyasi. Yeah, beautiful book. And then The Water Dancer by Tana nehisi Coates, and then this one, The Underground Railroad, has just added more to my knowledge and understanding. So every time you read something more, it just gives you another layer and another depth and a few more details and, and, and a deeper sense of what it was like to live in that time. I mean, I don't think we can even begin to imagine, no. but you get a a taste of it, I suppose. And it's not just about the evils of slavery, I think, that I've developed my understanding, but also I think it really informs your understanding about the issues facing America today. You know, there are some characters in the Underground Railroad that I could easily imagine being on the news Mm. in 2021. And, you know, they're quite possibly the great-great-grandparents of people who, who feature in this novel So it's a great reminder about the importance of knowing our past so that we can understand ourselves and steer the future. So I'm not going to go much into the plot other than to say it's set in the 19th century and I think a bit uh, deliberately a bit nebulous as to the exact time. And there are two young slaves, Cora and Caesar, and they decide to run away from the cotton plantation where they are held and owned as slaves. Cora is not only a slave, but she's an outcast among all the slaves on the plantation for various reasons. So she is literally living a terrible life. So really she doesn't have a great deal to lose. And Caesar has a connection with a man who is part of the underground group of anti-slavery people who helped slaves escape to the north. And one of the main impediments to slaves escaping was the person with the... Uh, exalted career title of slave catcher. So these people roamed around. There were bounties on the heads of, you know, various slaves. So plantation owners would put an advertisement out saying, this one's escaped and there'd be money to be made if you could catch them. And these people made a, slave catchers made a living out of that, which is just awful. And uh, we meet just such a low life in this story. So you sort of get a sense of, not only was it hard enough to escape, but you then had this wow. terrible sense of menace and pursuit from these slave catchers who made it their business to track you down. Just put shivers through my... Yeah. There was no actual railroad in reality. Mm. It was really just made up of individuals who hid slaves in cellars and attics and helped them on to the next leg of their journey. But in this novel, Colson uses the device of having an actual underground railroad made up of tunnels, which I thought was an interesting thing to do. Often books go the other way and they'll make up something, like the water catcher sort of went into magic realism and, and the people walked into water and then moved forward and it was all very sort of ethereal and unreal. Whereas here he's gone back to something very concrete. Yes. He's gone the other direction to sort of illustrate what happened. Very interesting. So I read this Underground Railroad for Book Club and it was such a good book to do for a discussion. Mm. We had such an interesting conversation. Especially in Australia because, as you said, we're not particularly educated, I don't think. No. About you learn nothing about it at school. No. So you... Anything you learn, you have to mm. learn for yourself. So that was excellent. It was The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Mm. Excellent. Next, we have the books in our theme. So we've got mm. crime books, but they're specifically books that are set, how would you describe it, Lou, in the legal world or? Yes, legal world, world in the courtroom or in the yeah. judges' courts, all that sort of yes. thing. Yeah, yes. Yeah, lawyers, judges' courts. I think in the legal world. Yeah, I think legal that's world. right. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about Stacey Abrams' book, While Mm. Justice Sleeps. It's brand new out. We absolutely love Stacey here at the Diving In podcast. We do. Stacey Abrams was born in 1973. She was the second of six siblings, um, born into quite a poor family. And she was raised, first of all, in Mississippi, and then later on her family moved to Georgia. Her parents retrained when Stacy was a teenager I think and they both became Methodist ministers. Stacy tells a very powerful story of topping her school academically and being invited to the governor of George's mm. mansion and being turned away at the gate. It's such a oh, it's just terrible yeah. story. I've heard her tell it in a mm. few interviews and it's really hits you in the mm. heart. After school, she completed a Bachelor of Arts at Spelman College, and then she went on to study. She did a Master of Public Affairs, and then she earned a Juris Doctor from Yale Law School, no less. And she's worked as a tax attorney. She has been a member of the Georgia General Assembly, and she ran for the Governor of Georgia Mm. in 2018, and she only narrowly uh, narrowly, missed out on winning that election.
1: And lost to the governor who had suppressed Georgia's voting laws anyway. Yeah,
0: Yeah. terrible. She has established two organisations that aim to counteract voter suppression. I imagine they're having to work extra hard at the moment. Yeah. And she's worked tirelessly to counteract the state-sanctioned voter suppression in Georgia. She has this sort of indefatigable drive to preserve democracy, in the face of these sort of continued Mm. attempts to diminish it and they're going on today still. Mm. So she's just such an impressive person and she's sort of done a lot of this without any sort of fanfare. She's just got on with it, and she's someone to be very much admired.
1: And she's probably single-handedly responsible, well, her and her army, uh, for changing Georgia in the most recent absolutely, election.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. She can take all the credit, in my opinion. So While Justice Sleeps, yeah, it's quite a big book. The prologue is quite interesting. I'll, I'll kick off by talking yeah. about that. It starts off, His Brain Died at 11.47 p.m., And then we're introduced to Supreme Court Justice Howard Wynne. And he's in his chambers, sitting in a Chesterfield. He's watching a news broadcast of a graduation ceremony that he had spoken at that day. And it was a ceremony at which the President of the United States' daughter had graduated. So there was a lot of press there. And Justice Wynne had sort of perhaps a bit inexplicably gone on a sort of a strange verbal tirade (laughs) and the news story is showing footage of the judge sort of ranting on the platform. Yes. And the judge doesn't seem terribly concerned about this and he's sitting watching and then his nurse comes in to give him his medicine and then the reader gradually realizes that the judge has some serious health issues mm. and in fact Stacy Abrams has given the judge a made up neurological illness called Borson's syndrome which is a progressive disease a brain yeah disorder, neurological isn't it? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, and you know that it's progressive and that his his outcome isn't great and that's, that's the prologue.
1: Mm. It's a very intentionally strong and dramatic opening, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And in that prologue, we also hear about his clerk... Hit one, one of his clerks. Yes,
0: there is a discussion about uh, his clerk, Avery right.
1: Avery Keane. And, and she's the heroine, really, of this yes. political thriller, isn't she? And of course, as we know, the position of US Supreme Court clerk is a very coveted, prestigious position um, for a law, young law student. It's sort of a position that probably goes to the brightest and the best. But we are aware from the very start of the book that Avery Keane's life is far from charmed. Yeah. It's, because the night that Justin Wynn is in his chambers, you know, watching his activities on the podium, Avery's asleep in her apartment and she's woken by, at 3am by a call from her mother, Rita. And I think from the get-go, we know that Rita is sort of simultaneously abusive and pathetic, Um, She's a manipulative addict and she stretches her daughter's love and goodwill as far as she can. And we learn that Avery has paid for her rehab. It hasn't worked. And so Avery is called upon to bail her mother out of her troubles. So I guess we know from the start that Avery's sort of got this Achilles heel. Exactly, yes. She has this sort of love and obligation for her mother with a mother that probably brushes up against the criminal justice system, which isn't really ideal for the position of a Supreme Court
0: Justice's clerk, is it? It's a terrible weakness, a potential weakness for her to have.
1: And then, you know, Avery arrives at the Supreme Court the following morning and she is summoned to the Chief Justice's office, which is a very rare occurrence. The Chief Justice in this book is a woman, Teresa Rose- Roseborough. Uh, and then in the chambers, there's also another person waiting to speak to her, and it's a Major William Vance. Uh, and the Chief Justice introduces him as the President's Liaison from Homeland Security. And together, they tell Avery that Justin Wynne is in a coma. Mm-hmm. This is a complete surprise to Avery. She's noticed that the judge has been mo- moody recently and short-tempered, but she hadn't thought that he was ill. And she also hadn't guessed that Jamie
0: Lee was in fact a nurse. No, she was a secretary that couldn't yes. type. yeah, <laughs> that was great. It was kind of cute, They'd wasn't hired it? This extra secretary who couldn't type. And
1: you know, we learn that the real reason that Avery has been summoned before the Chief Justice and Major Vance is to give her an envelope. Uh, and the envelope is addressed to her and written by Justice Wynne. And it's an envelope, in fact, that they'd, they've they already opened. Mm. And what she finds in the envelope is a power of attorney executed by Justice Wynne, which appoints her as guardian over his affairs. So that really is yeah. the kind of explosive start yes. kind of to the book, isn't it? So she, she kind of, Abrams sets up these quite strong character signalling in the meeting. You know the Chief Justice is kind of a goodie. Yes. She's a woman of integrity and humanity and you you know from just those opening paragraphs that she probably steers a very straight ship and her instincts are to trust and protect Avery. Clearly Justice Wynne did not speak well of many people but he had spoken well of Avery and that counts for a great deal with Chief Justice. On the other hand, Stacey Abrams is not very subtle in her characterization of Major Vance. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, I love some of the adjectives she used. He questions Avery in an accusatory manner and. Abrams describes his physical presence as hulking, (laughs) which I did think was a bit of a throwback to her romance (laughs) fiction, but never mind. Uh, She describes his hooded blank stare. Anyway, he, of course, questions the appropriateness of Avery's appointment as uh, Justice Wynne's guardian and he suggests that there may have been more to her relationship with the justice than simply being his clerk. And so the battle lines are drawn, Virginia. And the more uh, Vance and others begin to challenge Avery, the more she becomes determined to take her role as Guardian very seriously. There is another major part of the plot developing on the other side of the world, which I'll just very briefly mention. There's a doctor, Indira uh, Srinivasan She heads up a biotech firm in Bangalore. Yes. Advar Biogenetics. And that's a company that is trying to acquire another biotech company, Genworks, in North Carolina in America. And it's a merger that is heralded as the merger of the century. But it just so happens to be a merger (laughs) that is presently before the Supreme Court and a case for which Justice Wynn is considered the swing vote. So this is kind of the factual background to what I guess, becomes this sort of unfolding drama and a web of secrets into which Avery
0: is drawn. Yes, and the Borson's syndrome, which the justice is suffering from, there may be a cure for that floating around out there in the, in e. the ether. So she employs a sort of a puzzle element. Mm. Avery has to go through a lot of loops to find information from the justice. And it helps if you have an interest in chess. You need to be uh, au fait with chess terms and chess moves, which I'm not. So that did make it a bit tricky for Mm. me. And that puzzle element was very much like Stacey's romance novel that I read Mm. in our episode in episode 29, which was really a treasure hunt and in some ways this had a bit of a treasure hunt Mm. as well so she Mm. she does love that sort of thing Mm. the romance one it was a bit more um, having a laugh at itself Mm. this one took itself a bit more seriously I think and I think it worked better in the romance novel in this the treasure hunt seemed a bit contrived yes I almost thought it was a bit too much really Yeah, yeah yeah I think the strength of this book definitely lies in its clever plot there's no question she's come up with a very very clever mm. plot and conundrum really a, and a conundrum. what do you
1: do when one of your
0: yes supreme court justices goes into yes. a coma yes. he's not he's not dead yes and particularly well in in america of course where you're there yes. for life this is all foreign territory for australians yes. but it's a completely different scenario mm. there and I thought the pacing was mm. quite good, but I don't think the writing was all that fabulous. For me, the writing got in the way of the story for about the first quarter or the first third. And then I started to not notice the issues that mm. I had had with it. And I, I did become just fully involved in this story. Mm. Um, I have read an interview with her where she said that she wrote this about 10 years ago. Yes, she did, and under a different name and everything. Yes, yeah. and no one would publish it. So she was able to get publishers for her, all her other books, but no one would publish mm. this one. But she talks about how she
1: did a whole redraft. I think she spoke to a friend, didn't she, and she kind yeah. of changed the premise a little bit. Yeah, from she, the...
0: and she did update it. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. And you can see that. But, yeah. Um, Overall, I I enjoyed it, but I can it does have have some yes. flaws. Yeah, I should, should mention, of course, the big sort of factual plot
1: issue also is what does the president of the United States have to do with any of this? Yes, and that brings in this whole layer, new layer of characters, doesn't it? Really, It sure does. Um, and I don't know about you. I, this was very visual for me. Me too. It was so the TV- Oval Office. I thought I, was, I thought I was watching, you know, a, a TV series it, or it a movie. It would make a
0: fantastic and movie. And I think it
1: will be a movie. I, I honestly do think it will be a movie. I think the star power of
0: Stacey Abrams. I loved the fact that she made the president a war hero. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can sort of see Michael Douglas. I love that little touch. There there are lots of really good little touches yeah. in it. Yeah. It would make a very gripping mm. movie or a TV series. Uh, So what was your other one that you read, Lou? Well, look, I did
1: really want to do a legal drama that took place in the courtroom. Yes. And this book that I've chosen does take place, I'd say, 80% of the time in the courtroom. Oh, wow. And and this is The Last Trial by the veteran American author and lawyer Scott Turow. Uh, He still works as a lawyer, actually. He's written several books um, in this sort of legal thriller genre. The most well-known of which is Presumed Innocent, which, of course, became a movie starring Harrison Ford. And I think that book came out in the late 80s, maybe 87, I'm not sure. Anyway, some people think that Scott Turow is responsible for inventing the genre of legal thrillers, although... John Grisham was writing in the early 1980s, so I'm not quite sure. Yeah, okay. Um, it might just be that he is such a good writer, Scott Thoreau, that they've decided that it's, it's his genre for the keeping. Anyway, The Last Trial, which I'm reviewing today, was released last year. It's a very believable, complex legal drama. I don't know that I would describe it as a thriller, but it is very compelling and dramatic. Right. Um, it features the lawyer Alejandro Stan Alexander sandy stern as he's known right he's an immigrant to america originally from argentina he's made an appearance in all of Thoreau's novels which are set in kindle county in midwest of america it's a fictional place i think it's largely thought to be based on cook county near chicago he doesn't necessarily feature largely in those books, this character, but in this book he takes completely centre stage. I love stage. it when writers do that. Yeah. It's sort of like there's a web yeah. it, of characters. The and he whole community yeah, and, and pull he, that one out yeah, and, yeah. and hone in so on. on them. So he's, he's brought him forward in this book. He's 85 years old. He's not in the best of health uh, and he is determined that this will be, as the book suggests, his last trial. He's retiring, as is his daughter Marta, uh, with whom he has been in legal practice for many years. And so their client, Dr Kirill Pavel, is the last case they will be defending oh, together. Tense the title. Yes. So Kirill Pafko is a Nobel Prize winning scientist. He's a winner for medicine. He happens to be an old friend of Sandy. Mm, maybe that's a little bit of a red oh, flag. okay. And he's also an emigrate from Buenos Aires. And he is on trial relating to a drug, G. Livia. So there's the whole pharma connection here as well. It's a cancer drug that he is apparently responsible for. uh, And he is accused of manipulating research data, insider trading, following the manipulation of the data, and for murder, for causing the deaths of multiple patients who participated in the drug trials. Now, the manipulation relates to altering the data so as not to alert the FDA to the G. Livia-related deaths and also his failure to um, adhere to some of the FDA guidelines. So he's got insider trading, fraud and murder, which is a very nice, tidy set of charges. The murder one seems a bit odd
0: to me. but yes, it, yes,
1: yes. Well, if you know that there's a problem with the drug and you keep administering it, query your intention there. Yeah. And look, look, intention becomes an issue in the case. Uh, What I just love about this book and Thoreau's writing is the level of detail he brings to everything. He writes this book exactly as a criminal trial unfolds hour by hour, day by day. He reveals all the procedural considerations of the court, the strategic decisions of the defence, of the prosecution, particularly the defence, because we are sitting firmly on their side of the bar table. So you're alongside Sandy Stern and his internal reasoning, his discussions with his daughter, discussions with his client. Likewise, the evidence, you know exactly why Sandy or Marta are asking certain questions and as the testimony unfolds, you know, your interest is peaked, and you sort of feel this building of sort of suspense. Right. And I think that's because you're also privy to Sandy Stern's internal thought yes. processes.
0: So you know what his aim is. Or yeah, his what his aim is. Too. So
1: you know what he thinks a witness is going to say, what his clients told him, why he's going down a particular strategic route, how he thinks the prosecution is going to react and ultimately who he thinks his client is. Right. And if any of you are listening and thinking, Louise, this sounds tedious, I promise you it's not. It's riveting. It is the area of law I used to practice, the fraud and the insider trading, not not the murder. Yeah. So I did wonder, is this more interesting to me? But honestly, he draws you into sort of the human frailties and fallibilities you know like the relationships between the people in and out of the courtroom and also the ethical dilemmas that everyone are facing you know the judge in this case and the prosecution lead prosecution counsel and sandy stern are all friends
0: oh wow because
1: they've been practicing law together for years and so there's a quite a few little ethical well, issues a, can, i've got problems already <laughs> I know, I know. (laughs) So what this leads to is a very sort of complex layered story. There's a huge cast of characters in the book, partly because there's all the witnesses that are connected to the the defendant, yeah, Yeah. or then there's people who are well-known to Sandy Stern and his family. So it still feels quite intimate and the story doesn't run away from you. You know, I never, ever thought, hang on a minute, who's that character? I, I always Wow, that's yeah. very good. He's, he is a superb writer. I'm definitely going to re- return to his books. I did read Burden of Proof a few years ago and I really enjoyed it. So I can recommend this. This is The Last Trial by Scott Turow. It was published in the US in May last year, but published here in Australia and in the UK by Pan Macmillan in January this year.
0: Fantastic. Um, and yeah, loved, absolutely loved oh, it. I want to read that, Lou. That sounds you, so uh, good. I give it to you. Sounds excellent. What about you? What did okay, you Okay, well, I'm read? going to do a complete sort of steer in a different direction because I'm going back. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> As is my want. Mm. So I'm going to talk about a book called Tragedy at Law. What a great and name. So the author is a man called Alfred Clarke, but he wrote under the nom de plume of Cyril Hare, H-A-R-E. And I'm just so happy to talk about this because this author is excellent, but it's not one that's spruiked all over social media. That it, And it does get a bit repetitive and uninteresting when everyone just regurgitates the yes. same authors over and over and the same new releases. I just love it when there's something that's uh, from the backlist that's mm. really worth mentioning. So, Alfred Clarke, who wrote under the nom de plume of Cyril Hare, he was a distinguished barrister and a judge. He was born in 1900 and he died at the age of 58. He wrote about 10 books, and this book, Tragedy at Law, is the first of his books where he used his protagonist, Francis Pettigrew. And this was written in 1942. They're not thrillers by any means. They're much more in the cosy crime category, but they're quite literary because they're so beautifully written. Yes, but they're legal. So they're a sub. sub, sub, Very legal. They're part of the subset. The law is absolutely integral to the Mm -hmm. plot. And I have a theory that I think John Mortimer may have been inspired to write his Rumpole of the Bailey books as a result of these. Rumpole first appeared in 1978. So these Cyril Hare books had been around for a long time by then. And Tragedy at Law is about a British High Court judge, Mr Justice Barber, and he's on the Southern English Circuit. So what that means is he's going from town to town with his clerk, his marshal, his butler, Mm -hmm. the marshal's man (laughs) and a cook. I love it. And the way it works is that he will be sitting on a few cases, staying in the house provided in that town, and then when the list is finished, they all move on to the next town and hear the cases that they've got lined up for him there. He's a slightly pompous man. In fact, he's a very pompous surprise, man. Surprise, Yeah. And the book opens with a lot of pomp and ceremony for the opening sitting of the assizes in Markshire. And he's being driven up fr- from his hotel, or from the house actually it is, in a Rolls Royce. And there's a high sheriff in a top hat, in a, a uniform with this huge seven-foot mace, uh, and they're heading off to the cathedral behind a police escort. And then once they've had their church service to announce the opening of the assizes, then they're off to court. Doesn't happen on circuit anymore, it's does it? unbelievable <laughs> how much pomp and ceremony there was back then. And, of course, he's in his, you've got to also picture him in mm. his, the full regalia. He'd the have the long robes, wig on. He'd have the long the wig. long wig. He had yeah. his black square that they would put on if they were sentencing someone. That's right, to death. To yeah. death. The whole shebang. and <laughs> Taking themselves very seriously. Yes. <laughs> and wouldn't you, if you had all of that trailing yes, around? And the trapping our, of it all. Yes. And then we have waiting at court for the arrival of this sort of splendid ensemble of judicial functionaries, there is this barrister called Francis Pettigrew and Francis has two cases listed before Justice Barber here in Markshire, Mm. and then he has more cases in other In other counties. So he's going to be following the uh, circuit. The circus, actually. (laughs) The circus. circus. (laughs) And Pettigrew is a barrister who had shown a lot of early promise, but his career hasn't quite lived up to expectations. Mm. And... The other thing is that he had once, many years ago, been in love with Justice Barber's wife oh. before she was married. Yeah, uh, and her name is Hilda. Ah, which of course is the name that John Mortimer used for Rumpel's yes. wife, which I just find an interesting yes coincidence. And she is the most fabulous character. She's very haughty and clever and involved. And you can see why I think there's yes. some inspiration there. The book sort of after we've had that sort of setting of the scene, and it's delightfully poking fun at, mm. at the whole thing. He's He doesn't take it at all seriously. He's really uh, showing it up for what it is, which is what makes it so enjoyable for the reader. And then the next, thing that happens is that Justice Barber receives an anonymous letter threatening him and then a box of his favourite chocolates arrives and it's mysteriously been sent to him and it's been poisoned. Laced with something, wow. And it becomes apparent that someone is trying to kill the judge. Mm-hmm and so Francis pedigree becomes a sleuth and tries <laughs> to work out who it is and things progress as mm. the circuit proceeds around from town to town and i'm not going to say mm. any more because it's a really clever plot it's so clever the writing is very sharp very funny they sound charming utterly charming the depictions of the legal profession are spot on yeah The pacing is excellent. Uh, They're only small books and he packs so much in. The whole thing is just the most fantastic read. I really can't recommend them enough. I've read five of his books and I've got three more there to read and there's still a couple more. Okay, so So he wrote about ten, did he? Yes, there's about... Five or six Francis Pettigrew ones and they're rather delightful the way they you follow the development of Francis yes. Pettigrew. He's got some other ones with an Inspector Mallet and then there's a couple of books where Mallet and Pettigrew come together, mm. which I also really love. I think the thing I love most about these is that the clue to figuring out the murderer in each book turns on a legal principle or on an esoteric legal point or a piece of legislation or an amendment to Mm. legislation, often because that will reveal who has a motive. Mm. It might be a motive to inherit or a motive to avoid something. I don't want to say too much because the legal principle in Tragedy at Law is so clever. And it's just the perfect point on which the story hangs. Mm. Uh, and I should stress, though, that I don't think you need to be a lawyer no, to no. appreciate yep. these at all. They're so beautifully written; they don't get bogged down in legalese no. at all. And I really think everybody could enjoy them. Mm. So, if you like a cosy British crime, what a find. that was *The Tragedy at Law* by Cyril Hare. Excellent books. Mm. They just sound utterly delightful, Virginia. Mm. Now we're going to talk about some bookish news. Did Mm. you want to go first, Luke? Well, I will because of sort
1: of following on from reading both of us, While Justice Sleeps and also my Scott Turow book, they, of course, both had these opening prologues. And to be honest, if I had any criticism of The Last Trial... Which I am really loath to say because yeah. I just loved okay. it. Yeah. It was the prologue was so dramatic; it was almost melodramatic. And rather than sort of hooking me in to you know the novel and getting you reading, and yeah. getting, I, I actually found it a bit distracting. So um, I'm not going to sort of mention what was. Revealed in the prologue, no. but it's an event. and so I did spend quite a bit of the novel while I was reading the novel and really enjoying it, yeah, waiting for that event to happen oh, yes. or working out had it already happened yeah so it wasn't that it hooked me in. it, it was a distraction. So I it sort of sent me down the uh, rabbit hole of trying to research you know the use of prologues yeah, so in fiction so the invention of course, of prologues, was in the context of plays, and it's said that the prologue invention is attributed to Euripides, and he used a prologue in his plays almost as a first act to explain upcoming events. Set, set it up for exactly, the audience. Exactly, setting the scene. Another Greek Uh, Dramatists adopted that approach. And so prologues were almost part of the traditional formula for writing plays. You know, you set the scene, you inform the audience where the play was taking place, what events would be happening, who was involved... And sometimes they even warned them of the ending of the play, particularly oh. if they felt they needed to give a warning. Gosh. It was a bit like housekeeping, a bit of stage direction yeah. and, oh, and a bit of narration in some ways in plays. And Shakespeare used them. There's a quite a famous prologue in um, Romeo and Juliet, but more often he used epilogues, which of course are at the end of the play, which sort of describes the events which happen after yes. the plot is exhausted. Yeah, yeah. I think prologues are a little bit different in novels you know I have read prologues that give the reader context or information that doesn't naturally follow from the sequence of the story but for example in the Stacey Abrams book that did follow completely in the sequence yeah. of I don't again I can't, yeah. don't want to get into no. it too much but I think that that could very easily have been her first chapter Absolutely. And I think particularly in the crime and thriller genre, that what the author's really doing
0: is trying to use it as this dramatic hook. An explosion that makes you go, oh, now I have to find out. Exactly. But the thing is, nowadays when we don't write books chronologically... You could easily have it as a first chapter, couldn't you? Because yes. you can just say have you know yeah. January or December or something, yeah. and then, and then go it jumps, back. And then it go, jumps, yeah, backwards or forwards, whichever yeah. way. Because so you, back in the day when we when books were always just chronological, you can see that there might be an argument. Yes. For it, but really, there's no need. And now. I did read an interview with Stacey Abrams in the Atlantic, where I
1: think the person who was interviewing her was an author, and that author had been told that. He or she weren't very good at writing opening um, oh. chapters and or opening sequences and and Stacey said in the interview, "Well, actually, I am very good at that." And I don't know why the pro. It's interesting. Someone has said that an amuse bouche that you yes. have in a restaurant yes. offers a glimpse of the chef's style and, and their talent. Yeah. Yes. So a prologue is sort of this a literary device that arouses the reader's interest and gives you a hint of what's to come. But I don't see why that can't be in the first chapter. Yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) And, in fact, it's funny because John Grisham wrote an article for the New York Times in, I think, 2018, 2017, I've forgotten when, and he gave his writing checklist. Of course, we've talked about this in earlier episodes. And one of the items on the list he is he says, don't write a prologue, they're a gimmick. Uh Just write the first chapter. And likewise with the Scott Tarot, he
0: could very easily. Just called it chapter one. It could have been chapter one. Yeah, I think Stacey's could have been chapter one too. So it's interesting. Might have a word with the editors and just (laughs) give them the benefit of my advice.
1: (laughs) If any listener wants to tell us about a prologue, that they think has been used to yeah, really good it's effect.
0: worked really well. Yes, then, uh, yes then that's then a good idea. Please,
1: please tell us. It would be fun to go and look and see, mm. yes. Well, it is. I started pulling books off my shelf mm. and thinking what books
0: I have I read have had prologues. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you've really got me thinking now, Lou. What about uh, you? The, well, the things that sprang up for me that were bookish this week, and this isn't an obviously bookish thing, but... I just did want to mention how fabulous I think it is that Reese Witherspoon has done this amazing deal where she's merged Hello Sunshine with Blackstone mm. and she's, I think she's earned, it's over a billion dollars Australian. It's a bit, mm. a bit under that in Incredible American deal. dollars. But the thing that I find fascinating about this is that, first of all, that Reese is a big reader. Yes. And has a very good eye for a great story mm. and what mm. people love mm. to read about and what what stories need to mm. be told and particularly with the female slant on mm. things and can i say i think she's a real genuine reader she she's, she's absolutely, a, she's genuine just, reader, absolutely yeah, a genuine reader absolutely a genuine reader yeah. yeah and and i think people see her authenticity authenticity yeah when they're dealing with her mm. but the interesting thing about her is that this all started when she went to a couple of different production companies and with ideas, mm. with books that she had read, and said this would make a great movie. Mm. And this happened to her repeatedly, where they would say to her, "Oh, but we've already done a women's movie this year. <laughs> God, our quota is filled. <laughs> we, we've done a we've done our women's movie this year." <sighs> and she just thought that was just astonishing and that's when her husband said to her you should just do it yourself Mm. and he's a bit of a dynamo as Mm. well I gather and so I just love it that she didn't just let that sit and just say you know the filmmaking patriarchy have determined that there is only enough scope for one women's movie Mm. per annum Mm. uh, and that's our quota and that will do she said no there's a huge demand Mm. out there there's there's an unending demand for good stories about women. And mm. so she went and did it herself. I just think that is so yeah. impressive. And also we know that women are bigger consumers of books and stories and oh, podcasts. Hugely. So it's kind of obvious that they would also be bigger consumers of movies yes. <laughs> and TV series. Uh, and it's just interesting to me that the male executives didn't see that. No. And I think they're probably all deeply yes. regretting their decision. So I love that she backed herself. I, I love and in everything about that story. It is. It's, it's a
1: fantastic story. And also in so many traditions, the women are the storytellers. Absolutely. So that's, you know, it, it just made sense on so many levels. So
0: many levels. Yeah. I also really love this story for The example that it gives of if you are willing to go out there and make a beginning. Mm make some phone calls, do a bit of the hard yards. People always want to jump on board and yes. join in with that. Which is a spoon, though, Virginia. And she obviously <laughs> had a massive advantage. So if I say, I'm about to set up a production yeah. company. You and I, it's not going to happen. <laughs> we don't know anybody. It's never going to happen. But in her yes. domain, she yeah, knew absolutely. the right people. Mm. And I think we all do have yes. a domain. We can all make a beginning, <laughs> <I agree. laughs> albeit on a much smaller no, scale. I agree. And she was battling a
1: machine of an industry that yeah obviously was shutting doors. Yeah, yeah. So yeah.
0: there's a lot of lessons there for us mm. all, which I I think, agree. Um, it's quite a joyful... It's just such a great mm. story, so I thought I'd mention that. Mm. And then the other bookish news, I think we just have to mention that we have our own shelf. We do. We're so excited. <laughs> so you may have seen on our Instagram stories, but if you haven't, uh, we have been talking to the lovely owners of Collins Bookshop in Cottesloe in Western Australia, and they have created a shelf... And it has a huge number of the books that we have discussed on the podcast and they've put our bookmarks inside every one so people can go in and if they listen to the podcast, they can have a look through and purchase a book Mm. that they heard us talk about and enjoy it. So very exciting. Very,
1: very exciting indeed. They're very supportive and if you happen to be down in Cottesloe at the bookshop, please go in and speak to all the staff in there because they they are really big readers, aren't they? They, they are. Particularly Tor, yes. who I rely on yes. for so many of my recommendations. Yeah, he fantastic. is fantastic.
0: Mm. His back catalogue of books oh. is fantastic. So that was going to be my life hack. My life hack is use your local bookseller ah, there you because go. I receive a lot of, like you do, books in the mail from publishers and I'm on Bookstagram on Instagram and I'm in two book clubs. So I, I feel as though I'm a little bit, inundated really with information about books and what's forthcoming. And so often when I go into a bookshop, I don't tend to ask for help. No, I feel like, well, I I know all the, I I don't feel like I know everything. I don't feel that at all. But I do feel like a lot of this, you know, I'm familiar with, I've got a bit of an idea, but I've realised actually how much I'm missing out because booksellers and people like Tor and all, all the other people in there, they just have that wealth of knowledge. They do. And if you have a dialogue with them and you can say, well, I've read that and I love that, I, I don't like that, and it, very quickly they can narrow down for you mm. something that will just be perfect and put that in your hands. So it's been a really great reminder to me to actually use their expertise. And you mentioned
1: earlier in the episode, you know, the idea of always reading new releases because obviously lots of us use our libraries as well and I'm always scanning my friends' bookshelves and my family's bookshelves. But what I particularly like there as well, is that they're not always recommending new releases. You'll go in if they know there's a particular type of book you like. Tor said to me just a couple of
0: weeks ago, did you ever read this? Yeah. Did you ever read that? And I love that as well. Yeah. Um, No, they're fantastic. And the other great thing about them is that they... Um, we'll do free postage to anywhere in WA, which I love. Yeah, that's fantastic. fantastic. So that was that was our fun news. So, what else have you been diving into lately, Lou? My hubby Gus recently
1: recommended I listen to an episode of the Ninety Nine Percent Invisible podcast. Oh, yeah, and you so good. you recommended that podcast yeah. to me, but I. I'm sad to say I'm about three and a half months behind in the oh, episode, yeah. so I just cannot keep up with yeah. all these great podcasts. The episode he recommended I listen to is episode 445 and it's called The Clinch uh, and if you're looking it up, it aired I think on something like the 2nd of June. Okay. And this episode, Virginia, has a Stacey Abram connection, so oh. that's why I'm mentioning it. We, of course, recorded the Bodices and Breathy Signs episode featuring romance fiction. Not that long ago. March, Uh, I think. Yeah. And we featured, obviously, some of her books, you know, that she releases as author, Selena Montgomery. Yeah. The clinch is, in fact, what we've seen for many decades on the overwhelming majority of romance fiction covers. It is the tight embrace, traditionally between a man and a woman, usually, sadly, a white man and a white woman. Yeah. Um... And it's the sort of passionate, dramatic embrace on the cover of That's the romance so novel. The woman's body may be bowed over backwards. She <laughs> sometimes seems like she's being overpowered <laughs> by a man. So one of the producers of 99% Invisible, Katie Mingle, she has a mum, Pam... And Pam Mingle writes romance fiction. Oh. She was a teacher for many years. She was a long-time fan of Jane Austen. In fact, she wrote a, a Jane Austen spin-off. Wow. And then she decided to become a romance author. And surprise surprise, her first book was set in the Regency period, which yeah. is quite a popular yes. period for the historical romance yep. novels. And in 2015, the publishers entangled <laughs> You just love that yeah. romance fiction publishers are called Entangled. Oh, my God, that's perfect. They bought her first manuscript and they sent her their proposed cover design and Pam loved it. But one of her friends, in response to the cover, said, wow, that book looks like a real bodice ripper. Right. And Pam was quite upset about this and she notes that many romance writers do not like their books being referred to as bodice rippers because of the connotations of rape yeah and yeah. let's be honest in days gone by yeah rape featured quite a lot overpowering women in yeah. in historical romance fiction you know it absolutely did and even where the woman triumphs in the end uh, and marries her man right she has still suffered the trauma of rape in some of these books so I'm not missing words here. I didn't know that because I don't read these yes. books. So well,
0: yeah. do I? <laughs> <laughs> But you've obviously researched this. I stuff. Have.
1: Yes. And, of course, we're talking about, you know, books in the 60s and the 70s and okay. whatever. So Katie was embarrassed by the cover right. that was on her mother's book. And, you know, she had problems with this sort of dominant man and the yeah. submissive woman and all the sort of usual heteronormal um, kind of issues because she'd read the manuscript and she didn't feel that it reflected Uh um, the book and she had a discussion with her mother and she said you know why they they do actually disagree about what she actually said to her mum it's quite (laughs) funny but she said words to the effect of what why do you have covers like that if you don't want people to have that response so this episode which I heartily recommend is Katie's exploration of the genre so she follows the trends in the covers through the 70s and 80s she charts the changing in the covers of the languaging and the messaging of the covers Right? Uh, what do they mean what messages secret messages are they sending the readers okay um the 80s was the heyday of the ubiquitous clinch. Right. Um, she talks about an author, Joanna Lindsay, who yes, apparently was yes, a man. Yes, yes, I've med- seen yeah. that cover, and don't, those covers. I no, don't know if you remember the model Fabio with all the blonde yes, hair. Yes. Well, he was the brute right. that featured oh in the God. clinch on a lot of Joanna Lindsay's yes, novels. Yes. And apparently, I didn't realise this, they'd have a photo shoot with live models, Fabio being the man, and then the illustrator would lay tracing paper over the photograph <laughs> and he would trace the image and then he would paint it. Have you seen a lot of the... Yes. They're, they're like oil paintings, yes. some of them, aren't they? Yes. But there have in more recent years been some very um, different covers. I mean, yeah. we know from Stacey yeah. Abrams' books, she you know, she yeah. features black people on her covers. Yes. And there's even been covers with two women on the front and things have definitely changed. But what I hadn't realised is that there was, and I, I believe some readers of romance fiction lament all the changes because they used to rely on the cover to give them some hint about what was contained in the book.
0: Yeah. So, well, is that's not an unreasonable thing to do, is well, it? Well, <laughs> no, it's to do with the
1: colours. So oh. if there is a navy blue background... Oh, <laughs> yes, it's this secret society... If there's a navy blue background, there might be a military theme in the book. If there's a gold or yellow background, there might be a paranormal. Unbelievable. Yes, and if there is a purpley background, there might be explicit sex. Unbelievable. (laughs) I never knew that. It's fantastic. So do listen to that episode. That's The Clinch uh, on the 99% Invisible podcast, episode 445. That
0: is fantastic. You'll love it. Oh, that is brilliant. Virginia, what have you been diving into? Uh, not a lot, but I have been. I don't listening to, that for a minute. I, I'm listening to mm. another podcast, but I'll mention that next time because I'm only two fifths through it. Oh, so she's giving us a teaser today. So, yeah, so I have been listening to another one that's really good, but I want to listen to it a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I have been enjoying the party room. Just a, yep. a it's a little political one. Uh, with Patricia Carvelis and mm. Fran Kelly and they always have mm. a guest who Such is a good journalist. A political reporter. And uh, in these difficult times mm. I do love the background information that they bring. They just know so much more than mm. often gets reported. Whenever one of their episodes pops up I immediately leave. And obviously on it. all Australian politics so far yes yes yep. yes which is very much their metier mm. so yes they just have such a wealth of knowledge mm. and they've been doing mm. it for so long and they they're very good at reading mm. all the non-verbal cues and, and what was not said and who didn't turn up to things and yes. <laughs> all the sort of the more subtle things that are going on so they've got that insider just kind language. of it's really really good so i recommend that one excellent Uh, So that's it for us for today. I loved doing legal crime books Mm. uh, and we'd love to hear if you have a legal crime book that we should read Mm. because I think we're both very keen to read some more of these. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and if you have, we'd love you to write us a review and to tell a friend about our podcast. Your word of mouth recommendations and shout outs on your social media accounts really do help us to expand our audience and we're so happy when we hear that you've recommended us to a new listener. So we will see you again soon. Very soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now.
0: Breaking up, shaking up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working it down